Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. This episode is part of our Precision Pioneers mini-series, which is focused on the people who are on the cutting edge of precision medicine. And I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Carolee Barlow, who's an expert in neuroscience, neurodegeneration, and rare disease. In particular, Carolee has spent a large part of her career focused on genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. She's currently the chief medical officer at Escape Bio, where she's leading their work to develop treatments for genetic forms of Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease. This is a particularly exciting episode for me because at Sana, we've been working with Carolee and the rest of her team for the past six months to develop and launch a no-cost genetic testing program for LARC2 Parkinson's disease. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this later on. But first, before we get into that, Carolee, I'd love if you could just start with the two or three minute thumbnail overview of your career. Yeah, super, Patrick. It's really nice to be here as well. And we're equally excited to be partnering with Sanogenetics on this uh, precision medicine approach. So my, uh, I started out as a physician. Um, my background is in internal medicine and endocrinology. I uh, trained at the University of Utah and then went on to Cornell and Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I got a lot of exposure to rare uh, diseases mostly in the form of oncology or cancer-based diseases. I also did a postdoctoral fellowship in genetics with the famous Francis Collins at the National Institutes of Health, where I became incredibly interested in how to use genetics to help diagnose patients correctly, but then later to use that to help figure out how to define treatments that were targeted specifically for them. From there, I became a professor at the Salk Institute in San Diego, and then later um, was recruited away from academia to join the large pharmaceutical company called Merck Research Laboratories. And at Merck, I headed up um, the efforts around uh, neurodegeneration and also psychiatric diseases, and ultimately became responsible as the worldwide therapeutic head. Uh, looking across all of the different activities at Merck to find uh, medicines and approaches to help us deal with stopping uh, or preventing neurodegenerative diseases or slowing their decline, and also for finding ways to treat strokes. That was an exciting part of my career, and from there, we actually launched a small biotechnology company where I was the chief medical officer and chief scientific officer, harnessing the work of stem cells to see if we could understand uh, how to develop treatments that would engage our brains in, in the rejuvenation process for the treatment of psychiatric and cognitive diseases. I then went on to... Um, be much more heavily involved in multiple companies working on rare diseases. Um, and in particular, I was the acting chief medical officer for Amicus Therapeutics and was pivotal in helping them bring their rare disease drug forward for a rare disease called Fabre disease. And that was really my first time getting to see how precision medicine could really help change people's lives and really got that bug on how can we understand the genetics and then create a precision medicine that's targeted just for that mutation. I then became the chief executive officer of the Parkinson's Institute and Clinical Center, which is a uh, was an institute that was devoted to clinical care, clinical research, and basic research, really focused on what are called movement disorders. And of course, the most prevalent movement disorder is Parkinson's disease. But there are a host of different forms of movement disorders that have a very strong genetic component. 
And what they all have in common is degeneration of a part of the brain that makes it very difficult to control your movements. And in that capacity, uh, worked on several initiatives to try to do a better job with figuring out how to take a precision medicine approach to Parkinson's disease. And then later was able to take a, a large amount of the science and discoveries that came out of the Institute over to Eastgate, Escape Biosciences, Escape Biosciences. I always get that name mixed up. When I first started, it was Eastgate, and then we changed it to Escape. And um, have been able to be the chief medical officer there with some really fantastic programs that are specifically targeting um, a mutation in a gene that causes one of the most common forms of inherited Parkinson's disease. Amazing. Thank you for that. I'd love to actually jump into Parkinson's disease and, and genetics, in particular, what was known early in your career when you started to look at, you know, maybe all the way back in, in, in the days when you were at the Salk and looking at neuro genomics and, and the role of genetics in neurodegeneration. What was known about the genetics in Parkinson's then and where are we at today? How much have things changed or, or how much, how little have things changed? I'm curious to hear from your perspective. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I started at the Salk, we had very few disease known genes that cause neurodegeneration. And in fact, it was Francis Collins who discovered one of the genes that I was working on and made an animal model for called ataxia telangiectasia mutated. So a very uh, large name. It's called ATM, F for short. And this is a um, autosomal recessive disease, meaning you have to inherit a abnormal copy from your mom and your dad. And when you do have that, then you basically are born completely normal. But then as you grow and get older, your brain starts to degenerate. And so clearly a childhood neurodegeneration syndrome and one of the few genes that we knew of back then. Since then, of course, with the, um, the genomic era coming forward and being able to have the sequence known, um, it really has helped us understand a lot more about the genetics of neurodegeneration. And it was about 10 or so years ago that these key drivers for Parkinson's disease, the inherited forms of Parkinson's disease, began to be discovered. And so there's three different genes that are really strongly associated, but there's a total of almost 68 now known that can give rise to different forms. So the the ones that we're focused on at Escape are the ones that are in an inherited form of Parkinson's that's actually inherited as an autosomal dominant, meaning you only need one bad copy um, to then get the disease. And that's, that's a, a mutation in a gene that's abbreviated LRRK2 or LARC2. And the specific mutation um, is an activating mutation. So it, it's a mutation that then makes the gene way too active. So you think of an overactive gene that then stresses out the brain and then ultimately then causes the destructions of those brain cells. So our approach at, at Escape is to find a small molecule, meaning an oral drug, that a person can take once a day or maybe twice a day that can turn off that abnormal protein and leave everything else in the body completely untouched. That way the drug will be extremely safe and only shut down that mutated protein and stop it from being overactive, leaving the other copy 
completely untouched because we need a certain amount of this protein just to be healthy and happy. So we don't want to touch the normal protein. And that's what's the really exciting approach at Escape that no one else in the industry is doing. Amazing. And and what is the current state of understanding of how patients or people with the LARC2 variant or mutation are different from uh, people with Parkinson's disease generally, or, or even you know, general population? Does LARC2 Parkinson's present earlier, later? Is it more severe in some ways, less severe? I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about what's known about the the differences between the subtype of patients? Yeah, this is a great question. And there's a lot of people um, devoted to studying this patient population. And we've been very fortunate in the field that um, many different foundations and philanthropic donors have helped us understand this disease better. I would say in general, um, having seen many patients with this mutation, in general, they seem very much like typical Parkinson's patients with a, a, a typical course. The one thing that is unusual, though, is many more patients are diagnosed at a much younger age. We have patients with this mutation that were diagnosed in their 30s, for example, and that's very uncommon in non-genetic forms of Parkinson's. So that's that's a significant difference. Um, there are papers suggesting that for some patients, they actually have a more mild course. That What that means is that it goes slower. Ultimately, it's the same overall disease pattern, but um, it doesn't go as fast. So somehow the, the brain cells don't uh, undergo neurodegeneration at quite the same pace as other forms of Parkinson's. But that's not universal. There are many patients who... Um, have a course that looks just like regular Parkinson's and some patients who have an accelerated course. So our goal is really to ensure that we get in as early as possible and hopefully stop the disease from progressing any further. Ultimately, however, if our drug is really safe and we can show that it prevents the progression, it would ideal be uh, the best thing for us and ideally what we would want is to get this into patients before they ever develop Parkinson's. And this is similar to what I, what I mentioned to you with Amicus's story is that we proved that we could stop the progression of the disease Fabry disease, which is also a very challenging disease with strokes and heart attacks and irreversible kidney damage. And once we showed that we could stop that progression and show that the, the drug was very safe, it's actually approved for, for kids in their teenage years if they have a specific mutation that's responsive to the medicine. So they can take this medicine before they ever get a stroke or a heart attack or before their kidneys are irreversibly damaged and essentially then not ever get gray disease. And that's really the vision we have for this precision medicine approach. Amazing. I'd, I'd love to learn more about how you actually design trials around answering that question. I can imagine in the Fabry disease example, you have some really clear indicators like like a stroke that you can look for differences in the treatment group and the control group. How do, how do you do it in a disease like Parkinson's where um, it, it can be a little bit less clear or progression, um, disease progression can take place over a much longer time period? Or, or, or do you simply have to run really long trials or, or are y'all thinking about um, you know clever ways to 
to to measure leading indicators for progression, whether it's biomarkers or or otherwise, in order to to eventually kind of achieve what you just laid out about stopping the disease progression early rather than than waiting waiting until um, it's already progressed to a pretty severe degree and and looking for a reversal or something a little bit more obvious. Yeah, Patrick, those are great questions. And a big part of our approach is to partner very early with the regulatory agencies as well as the philanthropic organizations to try to chart a new path for this rare disease. So there's not that many people with this mutation. And so doing very large and very long trials would likely not work in this population. And that would, that's, that would not be a good thing. So in many of the regulatory agencies, when you're working with rare diseases, they partner with you very closely to try to develop innovations so that you can actually do the kind of trials to prove that your drug is beneficial, prove that it is safe, and then be able to move forward with these patient populations. And so we really are taking um, taking learnings from our experience in rare diseases to be very innovative. So, for example, we would like to use biomarkers that we know um, are in some way associated with disease progression. So, for example, we know there are some abnormalities in the cerebral spinal fluid of people with this mutation even before they get Parkinson's disease. And so we, what we'd really like to do is to show that we could potentially fix those abnormalities or partially fix them in people who already have Parkinson's disease and show that we can actually reverse that or at least in bring it back closer to normal. If we can do that, then it would suggest that we're attacking the problem at its source and reducing the issue, even though we haven't proven that we've slowed the progression of Parkinson's. Because you can imagine in a disease that takes 15 to 20 years to progress, we can't do a 15 to 20 year trial and ask half the patients to be on placebo and half to not be, and then see if there's a difference in the rate of which they their brains degenerate. That would be a very challenging thing to do. So we really want to partner and develop a very strong biomarker platform that will give us hints that we're doing the right thing. The other thing that's really becoming very important is that these are movement disorders, meaning that the part of the brain that's degenerating is responsible for helping you move. And one of the things that's challenging is, is detecting these subtle changes in degeneration that, rec- that cause small changes in your ability to move correctly. But I can tell you when you talk to Parkinson's patients, they'll tell you many times, you know, I thought something was wrong five years before I was diagnosed. I just, like I had one uh, very close friend and patient who was a ballroom dancer. And he said, he noticed at least five years before he got the formal diagnosis that when he was doing his dancing and had to step backwards, he didn't ever feel as confident as he used to moving backwards, but he never noticed anything was wrong when he was moving in a forward direction. And so one of the things we're doing is taking advantage of all these new sophisticated wearable technologies that look at the way you move and that we can measure that in a daily setting in their homes And we hope that combined with a biomarker will allow us to detect abnormalities much earlier 
and be able to have a more sensitive measure to see if our medication is reversing that or stopping it from progressing. So this is a really important goal for us. And as you saw, the FDA just recently approved the Biogen drug for Alzheimer's based on a biomarker with a commitment that to then do additional studies after the drug is approved. That's a very standard thing that's been happening in rare diseases, but this is the first time it's happened in a larger disease like Alzheimer's. So we're very encouraged that if we can develop a really robust biomarker approach and use these sensitive wearable devices to detect a benefit in their in patients' movement, that we could actually have a much more accelerated path to making sure these patients, our patients, get this, this medication when we're ready and have shown it's really safe. That's great. And I really appreciate that overview. You've named a couple of different technology waves that it seems like have, um, yeah, have, have been combining to make what you're doing possible. I'm, I'm curious what else has changed in the last five or so years that has made what you're doing and what others are doing to develop more genetically targeted therapies possible, because it seems like there's a, a very big wave um, going on now. And I know in Parkinson's in particular, there, as far as I'm aware, hasn't been any genetically targeted therapies uh, approved. And, and it's, it's really only in the last five years or so that work has really begun on a large scale. What, what do you think has changed? Because the gene itself has been identified since uh, I think pretty early 2000s post genome project. So the existence of, of LARC2 is, uh, has been known, but, um, but treatment has, has been elusive so far. Yeah, I think it's a large part because it's, even though the genes have been discovered, we haven't had a lot of genetic testing available to patients. And you can imagine if you're a neurologist or any kind of physician seeing a person um, with early onset Parkinson's, let's say, and they might want to get genetic testing. Well, as you as a physician, you may not want to suggest that genetic testing because there's nothing we could do about it. So even if they had a mutation, there's nothing we can do about it. And right now, insurance companies don't pay for genetic testing or even for genetic counseling. So as a physician, you need a genetic counselor, you need a certified genetic testing service, and none of that is covered by insurance companies at all right now. And so, in fact, a lot of people who have Parkinson's disease that's caused by a genetic patient mutation probably don't even know it or even know how to get access to it. And so one of the big things that um, the field has been trying to do is to try to lay the foundation to provide genetic testing and the associated services to the physicians and to the patients so they'll be willing to get genetic testing. Then as we find out how many patients there are and we learn more about them, it makes it more enticing for the industry to go after those um, those precision medicine approach. When you don't have a patient, a significant patient population or a way to identify them, then it becomes quite complicated for industry to think about de developing a medicine just for them. And so, as I mentioned, we've been very lucky with the LARC2 story because there's been huge investment driven by philanthropy in trying to provide some no-cost genetic testing. And so there are several initiatives that have that have been going on in the academic world um, as part of like a research study. And then the Parkinson's Foundation is also uh, has a academic study going on at their centers of excellence that are now checking for mutation in this gene and providing services like no cost genetic testing. 
and um, support for the physicians. And that's exactly what we're doing with Sanogenetics as well, is providing a resource to patients and physicians so that if they have some of these risk factors, anybody in their family with Parkinson's, they have a young onset Parkinson's, they come from an Ashkenazi Jewish background, um, a first or second degree relative with Parkinson's, for example, not even just um, it could be a cousin or an aunt or an uncle, and then they get Parkinson's. We're providing the free, no cost genetic testing to them, but also genetic counseling services and support for the physicians, and then alerting them to any studies that they might be eligible for based on whether or not they have this G2019S LARC2 mutation. So we're sort of at the forefront for a G2019S LARC2 specific precision medicine approach, but there are companies developing non-selective approaches, and uh, Denali is doing that um, for the treatment of regular Parkinson's disease. Um, and also some patients can get eligible uh, testing there as well. I think that the big other person who've been or companies that have been working in this space is called Genzyme, which was bought by Sanofi. And interestingly, Gen- Genzyme started as a rare disease company. So it's in their DNA to be a rare disease company. And they have developed a small molecule for another disease called neuronopathic Gaucher that they thought might work in another form of genetic Parkinson's disease. Unfortunately, that drug did not work in that genetic form of Parkinson's disease. But again, it brought a highlight to the community to that there's at least a trial that you could enroll in if you have mutations in this gene. So I think that as we find ways to bring genetics to patients directly and to their healthcare providers and give them the support that they need to interpret the data, to get them to genetic counselors and not put a burden on a physician to help their patients navigate um, this complicated genetic testing and also clinical trial world that we hope will continue to be not only at the forefront for G2019 SLARC2, but enable really precision medicine approach for all forms of genetic Parkinson's disease. How do you approach the physician in this equation? Because I'm not a physician myself, but I know you you are and um, and have had this experience intimately. How do you all think about shifting the mindset from Parkinson's disease as, as a single common disease and, and obviously treating patients individually um, you know, based on, on their needs and requirements towards Actually, it sounds like you're describing it as more, as more like a combination of individual rare diseases that um, probably are going to require specialized treatments and approaches. How how do you think about changing that mindset or or set of thinking in the healthcare system? Because I think you highlighted a big challenge here, which is the, the chicken or the egg issue, where without an approved therapy or a therapy in development, there's no reason to test. Now you all have have a therapy that's in development. So um, you know, it gives a good reason to test. But how do you think about ultimately transitioning this from something that um, you know, that's part of your development program and offering no cost testing and into something that becomes part of the healthcare system as a whole? Yes, a great question. So our company, we have several people on our team have worked in rare diseases for a long time. And so we we've seen how this can evolve once you get a critical mass of people supporting it. And so a large part of what we need to do is 
um, continue to push the envelope as a company ourselves, like we are with uh, Sano Genetics and Engage Health to bring this genetic testing forward, but also to partner with people like the Parkinson's Foundation who have another initiative that's um, focused more on the academic learnings that come out of um, looking at different forms of genetic Parkinson's. And our hope is that by doing this as a, a larger pre-competitive consortium, we can begin to engage the health insurers, the Kaisers, the Dignity Health, the very large um, network health providers to make sure that this is part of an offering. Because if we can better understand the genetics and develop more tailored therapy, it's in the insurance company and healthcare provider's best interest financially because Parkinson's disease is very expensive to take care of. If we can convince them that by stopping the disease or preventing its progression, it actually would be a cost-effective aspect of what they're doing, then we're quite confident that they will make sure that that's part of their healthcare delivery plan, that genetics and genetic counseling are part of what they offer. And we're fortunate, again, because there's a company called Centagene that I worked with extensively when I was at the Institute, and we developed a neurodegeneration panel of tests. It's a very sophisticated company, and they're heavily involved in doing research in the area of genetics and developing all of their own strategies and partnering uh, with other companies like Denali to also then be ready to deliver a test that can test for all forms of genetic variations. I think their test is almost 68 different Parkinson's genes. And they're supporting them with genetic testing and all of that help if you enroll in their studies. So what we hope is that with all of us working together to generate these important data sets, um, that at the time when we're able to bring forward a therapy that's beneficial, that, that the insurance industry and the large healthcare providers will ensure that these medicines and this testing makes it to patients. But we have a lot of work to do, and we're very um, excited about offering our own program and helping patients know that if they have this mutation, they could be eligible for a study um, and ultimately an interventional study. I think one thing that's really important about our approach is we don't want to distract our patients and if they're in our natural history study because they're eligible, that doesn't prevent them from being in interventional trials of other drugs. So that's a really important thing that this information is for the patient and their physicians, and they can use that information to help inform whatever they want to do, whether it's a different company's clinical trial or our clinical trial. We want to make sure that we're really empowering the patient and their physicians to use this information in a way that will directly benefit them. That's great. And and, and I think it's a really key point to, to keep in mind. I'd love to just zoom out into your wider mission at um, Escape. We talked a lot about Parkinson's and, and the LARC2 testing that you're doing, but your wider mission is around precision neurology more generally. Could you talk a little bit more about that mission and, and what it entails and maybe paint the, the picture five, 10, 15 years down the line, if you all are successful, what that looks like? 
Yeah, so the genetic program that we're the most focused on right now is the G2019S mutation in the LARC2 gene because we're launching a natural history study um, in order to generate the data on biomarkers and wearable technology that we can show to the FDA in order to develop how we're going to find a benefit from our drug. So that's a really critical pre-work that needs to be done to ensure that if our drug works, we can get it approved quickly and not take 12 years to get the drug approved. That's really important in, in, in rare diseases and in neurodegeneration because every, every day uh, counts. The company also has other programs that are targeting other rare forms of neurodegeneration. And these are in, a, in another aspect of um, the brain degeneration syndromes that have to do with pathways that may actually help in, in other forms of genetic Parkinson's, not G2019-SLARC2. So we also have the beginnings of a program around the other incredibly common form of genetic Parkinson's caused by mutations in a gene called GBA. So we have that ongoing. We're also extremely interested in identifying people who are at very high risk of a rapid form of Alzheimer's disease due to mutations in something called the ApoE4. It's another mutation. And if you have two bad copies, one from your mom and one from your dad, that results in a very uh, malignant form of Alzheimer's disease. And importantly, if you have a mutation in the ApoE4 gene and, for example, a second mutation in another gene, it's like a double whammy. You get, even just with one copy, you have all the problems with the cognitive and, and abnormalities that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, plus you have all the other problems um, with the movement disorder. And that's another rare genetic combination uh, group that we think we could potentially help as well. So everything we do is targeted around patients with specific mutations and identifying treatments that are um, specifically made for those types of mutations. We think that by targeting those precision genetics that we're going to have a much more likelihood of, of success. And I think that um, that's where things like the biomarker approach, which I'm thrilled, um, is beginning to be part of the FDA's um, ability to uh, allow these drugs to move forward. If we can identify a specific genetic population with a specific biomarker that's abnormal in that genetic population, we think there's real opportunities for acceleration and getting these patient, these treatments to patients sooner. Amazing. Well, Carolee, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we're running against time here. Um, just wanted to take a second to uh, flag up that if people are interested in learning more about the LARC2 genetic testing program. There's a dedicated site, which is geneticpd.com. And, and your wider website at escape is escapebio.com. Is that right, Carolee? Exactly. Great. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And maybe just to close out in, in last minute we have here is love to hear an, about an area of either precision medicine or precision neurology that just generally speaking, you're excited about, um, not, you know, not necessarily related to your work or, or could be, um, if it's something that's off the beaten path that we haven't heard of, then that's extra points, but would love just as a, as a closing thought here, anything that you'd suggest people take a look at that might not already be on their radar. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really exciting new opportunities where you combine the precision neurology with some new 
ways of delivering medicine. So ours is going to be a pill that you swallow, which is the easiest way and often the very safest way. But there's a lot of new things going on with gene therapy, um, a way of delivering RNAs. Um, everyone knows about the COVID vaccines coming from BioNTech, Pfizer, or from Moderna. This is a really unique way of delivering a small message of RNA that can get turned into a protein because it's, if you just give RNA, it gets eaten up by our bodies. Our bodies don't like that. But if you wrap it in this thing called a lipid nanoparticle, which now people now know what a lipid nanoparticle is because of these COVID vaccines, you can deliver these RNAs and they can make lots of new protein. And in the case of the vaccines, makes the antibodies to help us not get COVID. But there's just a lot of excitement in using lipid nanoparticles for other diseases. And there's a few companies, well, Moderna was working on it for certain rare diseases, and there's many other companies as well. And I'm really excited about how that information and those learnings could ultimately be translated to figuring out how to get those lipid nanoparticles into the brain and figure out how to help us with those brain diseases right now. Getting them into the brain is still very challenging, but I think this is an area that is potentially extremely exciting and we're paying, we at, at Escape are paying close attention to it and many people we know in the field are paying close attention to it. So I would see that as our next really big innovation. Amazing. Well, thank you, Carly. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the discussion and, and really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome, Patrick. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.